So I'm going to read the um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, um, chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, and see if you can pick out the part of, of this reading which is very similar to part of that psalm that I, that I just read. Not exactly the same, but quite similar. Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with with each other. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father, who is over all and in all and living through all. However, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That is why the scriptures say, when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that it says he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all of the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we have come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Thank you, Doug. Thank you for the worship that has so laid the foundation uh, of the text that I'm speaking on this morning. And thank you for the the welcome here again for this, this morning to share with you. Let's just bow again in prayer and ask for God's presence. What an honour, Father, 
to open your word, to speak, and what a challenge. And I'm so mindful of your words long ago when you said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, Jesus, I ask that you would be here, working and moving through me and in me, and in each heart, opening us to the truth of your word and enriching us through it for your honor and glory. Amen. This is um, one of those occasions I was telling Tim earlier, I said this is one of those passages that has been with me almost all my life. I can remember being excited about this 40 years ago. Um, this particular passage is one that um, I come back to again and again because it's uh, one of the rich teachings of the scripture. But I also am aware as I get older that some of my idealism has been tempered. Uh, and it reminds me a bit of that uh, story about the uh, American hillbilly who left the holler down in Kentucky and decided to get a job with American Telegraph and Telephone Company and they got him to build or to put, uh, well trained to put those telephone poles in the ground so that they could string the lines across the, the roads to new places. So he went through this rigorous training and he learned how to use that the machines and the truck, how to lift the pole, how to drill the hole with the auger and and put the pole in place and set it in. Finally came the day that he went out for the first time on his own. And at the end of the day, they got all the guys together that had been trained, and they said, so how many poles did you put in? And one guy said, I've got 12. And then they said, I've got 10. And then they asked this chap, he said, how many did you get? He said, i got three. They said, three? Only three? Why did it take you so long to do three? He says, well, the other guys, they cheated. They only put theirs in a little bit. So I buried mine all the way down. <laughs> you can do such hard work, and if you don't get the, the task right, you can waste effort. And I feel so often, as a church, we've been caught in this issue of unity not understanding God's blueprints, not understanding what it is he's really after. Uh, and then we end up working very hard to make things happen. The end result isn't what God wanted or intended in the first place. So maybe this morning we can get a fresh glimpse of what God is after in his church and this wonderful blueprint of unity. I may have told this story before. I don't remember whether... I've shared, uh, if I do, forgive me, but I can remember years ago pastoring, um, and there was a woman who came for counseling to me as a pastor in our church, and I had just resolved in my heart that before I talked to anyone, I would pray with them, and that became kind of foundation for what I do even yet. And uh, as uh, she came in, I started praying, and I had a picture in my heart, in my mind, in the spirit of, of this house um, where she was. And God was there in the house with her saying, I want you to come outside and look at something. 
And he took her outside, and there they had dug a trench around the foundation on one corner, and there was a crack in the foundation. And he said, before we do any other work, we've got to repair this crack. So I shared this with her, and she burst into tears. And she said, oh, she said, I know God has been trying to deal with this thing in my life, and I want him to get on and bless my ministry and help me to get active in the, the work of the kingdom. And he keeps wanting to come back to this thing. And she said, absolutely right. So we talked about it, and God did some wonderful things in her life. And a few weeks later, um, she came back and asked for help again in prayer. And, and okay, so we sat down, and again, I just prayed beforehand. And I had this picture, and this is the one I wanted to share with you. God was sitting in her sitting room with her, and there was a table, and there were blueprints out. And she was arguing with God over what she wanted built in that, onto that house. They were going to do an addition, and she wanted it done this way. And as an architect, he was saying, you can't do it that way, you have to do it this way. And so I shared the picture with her again, and she broke into tears again, burst into tears, and said, oh, that's absolutely right, that's my life. I realize that I keep telling God how I want him to do it, and how I want him to work, and he has a blueprint, and I need to surrender. And I think that's where we often are. We, we come to this place of trying to tell God how he should do his work. Sometimes he said... Actually, our prayers really translated, you know, we say, oh, God, would you do this for me? Actually, what we're saying is, servant, would you do this for me? We're telling God how we want him to do it, rather than asking him how he wants to do it in our lives. Well, here's an example for us, to sit for a moment and let God speak to us about how he wants to do this thing. A wonderful passage on the unity of God's church. Paul begins, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be humble, gentle, patient, and bearing with one another in love. The three attitudes of unity that I pick up in this passage, that are the foundations, if you will, for all the work we're doing. If we're going to allow God to build a church, his church, with the kind of unity of heart and spirit that he wants, that the characteristics of that unity will always be humility, gentleness, and patience. Remember years ago, studying the word patience in the original language, in the Greek um, of the Bible, and it, it's an unusual word because patience is only one translation. One of the best alternative meanings of the word is, is actually enduring trust. And I realized, actually, you know, one never loses patience with someone you trust implicitly. You lose patience because, first of all, you've lost trust. And when we learn to trust one another, trust God in one another, it is a huge beginning. Humility, that sense of, 
an honest appraisal of who we are before God, not trying to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, but with sober judgment. And gentleness, that characteristic that doesn't force its way, but entreats and urges. These are the attitudes that God would have us adopt if we're going to do it his way, as it were, and allow his church to be built together in unity. Then he says something else, Paul says in verse 2, or verse 3 rather, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, there's something very interesting in this passage, and I'll come back to it again, but I want you to notice here it says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And in verse 13, it says, until we reach the unity of the faith. Now, I'm afraid too many times we have been concerned to build unity on the basis of doctrinal purity and truth before we get to unity of the Spirit. And I find that we get the order wrong. Because actually God says, start and hold on to the unity of the Spirit until as you grow together in love, you begin to see the unity of the faith. And I'll get back to that in a minute. The first thing he says is, make an effort to maintain this. It isn't something that happens automatically. I think if, um, if I had one word to the contemporary church, I would say, please don't assume anything happens in the faith automatically. Most often, almost always, the things God promises are, require an effort of faith or obedience for them to be brought into our lives. And here's another one. He says, make every effort to hold on to this unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And it's an interesting language, this bond, or actually it's almost like band of peace. The picture that Paul is taking is of those old wooden barrels. I don't know if you know them, where they have stayed, you know, kind of bent pieces. They all interlock together around, and what holds them in place is the band around, usually around the top and the bottom and in the center, to hold each piece locked in against the other. And that's the picture Paul is, is painting here. He's saying, make every effort to, to embrace one another in that band of peace, that common care for one another that uh, holds on to the way of Christ. And that is the effort that we have to make each for the other. Um, it is so often difficult to... Um, you know, the people we love, the people that we get along with naturally, uh, we don't mind them being in, you know, in the barrel next to us. You can, you know, I'd love you to be the stage next to me, but not you, please. No. <laughs> oh, you just don't quite fit, you know. <laughs> but God says, make every effort in peace to be that barrel, to be those stains together. Because it's, the interesting thing is, one piece of wood could never hold liquid. But when each one is held next to the other, and held together in that band, 
the whole barrel can hold a liquid water or whatever. And that's the way the church is meant to be, as we're knit together, held together in that unity of spirit, then he can feel who we are as a church in a wonderful way. That if one piece is missing, everything flows out. That challenge is really important to us. Then there's a basis of unity, and I love this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. So there is a basis of unity, one body, one spirit, and one hope. So if we're looking at on what basis do we maintain this unity of the spirit, here are the three bases. One is the body of Christ is one body. God doesn't have many bodies. He has one body. And we need to remember that. Sometimes that's hard when we think of what denominations have done to his church. But actually, we are one body. We are one. And you find that wonderfully, don't you, when, when people come from different cultures and they, you discover their faith. I've had a recently a wonderful experience of encountering a couple who come out of the Middle East. The husband was a former Hezbollah fighter and a Muslim. And he became a Christian and gave up his, his, uh, his warfare. And now is praying for the peace of Israel, which is wonderful. And he married another former Muslim. And now she just finished studying at uh, Spurgeon's College and is, is uh, practicing in ministry together. And when you talk to them, and you share, there's a spirit of unity, and you realize it doesn't matter where we come from. When we share Christ, there's unity, there's a oneness of spirit. that share. We're all part of the same church, no matter where we come from. I've been challenged for years by a simple message on Acts chapter 1, where the writer said, do you notice when Jesus gave the commission, he said, Go, you're going to preach the gospel in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He said, did you ever notice what he left out? I said, no, tell me. He said, well, it's a, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, and it's in that province of Judea. That's the southern province of, of Israel. Samaria is the middle province, where the half-breeds kind of lived in their language. And there was a third province where all the disciples had come from except for Judas Iscariot. That was Galilee. The one place he never sent his disciples to was Galilee. Why? I think because he knew if they'd gone back to Galilee and stayed in Galilee, Christianity would have been a Galilean sect of Judaism. And I find that God keeps sending us out beyond our comfort zones. We need to, Americans need to watch this all the time. We don't, we keep thinking that we're a Christian nation and just because we're born in America we're Christians or British had that wonderful state church arrangement where you have the Anglican church as the, the, the church of the nation. And so if we were a Christian nation, but then that gives us a sense somehow that other people aren't, when actually we're not a Christian nation anymore. 
Christianity is a very minority, very small minority of the population. We're actually a secular nation with Christian heritage, which is rapidly diminishing. Now, why am I saying this? Because we are one body. That body of Christ is not limited by national ties. It's much larger. One spirit, a variety of experiences of God's spirit, but one spirit who births life in each one of us, brings honor of Christ in the life of Christ in each one of us. And that unity is where we find our oneness together. And one hope. That eternal life, that promise of living with him forever, that we all share wherever we come from. And that's the unity of the Spirit, the basis upon which we hold to that unity. And then, he says, there are three confessions of unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, that's interesting, because the order is important. I find that um, Paul is very careful here not to say one saviour. And I think if I have any challenge to evangelical churches, it's that we emphasize so much knowing Jesus as saviour that we forget maturity doesn't begin until he becomes Lord. Knowing that Jesus has saved me from my sin and trusting him for eternal life is, is critical beginning of the new birth. But our life on this earth begins for Christ when he becomes Lord, when he is a master, when we surrender to his rule over our lives. And I'm afraid there are Christians who trust Christ as Savior, but do not allow him to be Lord. And the unity of the church begins with a confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. So I could say it simply, if Jesus is not Lord, the church will not be one. That is simple. If we're fighting to be Lord, if we're fighting over who's going to be Lord of this church, who's going to rule it, who's going to have the power, Jesus Christ will never be Lord. And the church will never be one. One Lord, one faith, very interesting Greek word here, faith. This one is the Greek word pistis, which means trust or commitment or pledge. So there's one Lord, and there's one commitment to him as Lord, and one baptism. Now, I think that says something very powerful. We, as Baptists, are very clear to speak about believers' baptism, but I don't think you can find a clearer teaching in the New Testament about believers' baptism than this. First, Christ must be Lord. Then I must acknowledge him as Lord, publicly and freely. And then I see that in baptism. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. No baptism without the Lordship of Christ will ever be baptism. I love that illustration of marriage when it comes to baptism. And there comes a time, came a time, when I knew I loved my wife so much that I wanted her to marry me. 
There's a difference, isn't there, between, oh, she's lovely, and I love taking her out for a date, and saying, oh, she's the woman I want to spend the rest of my life with. And I made a public declaration in our wedding where I said, I'm forsaking all others, and I'm giving myself to her alone as long as we live. I think the same thing is true in baptism. There comes a place where we say, I love you, Lord Jesus. I love you so much, I want you to be Lord of my life. And I stand publicly, I go under that water of baptism, and I say in that, from this day forward, I forsake all other lords and all other kings, that you might be King Lord of my life until the end of my life and into eternity. And that's where unity comes. When you have a people who are gathered together on the basis of the Lordship of Christ, there is unity in the Spirit. Then there's this wonderful guarantor of unity. One God and Father of all. I need to take it back to John 17 and Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is the prayer he prayed just before he went to the cross. And he was praying for his disciples and he went on and he said, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and I. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, as a picture of unity, that is supernatural. May they be one as you, Father, and I are one. Wow. May we be one as the Father and the Son are one. Different personalities, yes, but one in essence and heart and purpose. May we be one like that. That was Jesus' prayer. Now, say three things about that prayer. First of all, unity was the dying request of the Son of God to the Father. Secondly, I doubt very much that Jesus would have prayed outside the will of God. And thirdly, I don't think he would ask the Father to do something the Father could not do. When I look at the church, I think, why is that prayer not answered? I think in some ways it's answered every day, but in other ways we wreck the thing that God wants to do and prevent the prayer of Jesus being answered. May we learn to hear that in a fresh way this morning. So Paul says, there is one God and Father over all, who is, of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So authority begins with him. It's, his presence is experienced and his empowering is evident. This unity of the Spirit is a gift from the Father, a gift of his authority, of his presence, and of his power.
Wow. Chapter 1. Now let's go on to chapter 2. It's an interesting passage, Doug, that you shared with us from Psalm um, 68. And, and then on that song as well. Thank you, because it's right here now. To each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he gave, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now, the picture of this passage is actually the picture of the victory procession after battle is won. So what you have is, the battle is won, the king comes marching through the street with his soldiers, leading captives in his train. He's got the prisoners in chains marching down the street, and as the people come out to celebrate, he gives gifts to the people in celebration of his victory, usually the spoils of war. And that's the picture of this language. And Paul says, that's what it's all about, you see. Christ is one. Christ is one at Calvary. In his resurrection, he defeated the enemy. And Paul says, what does it mean, ascended on high, if it doesn't mean, first of all, that he descended, which means, of course, that he died and descended into hell and went to Satan and said, give me back the keys. Give me back the authority. You had from Adam all the authority over heaven and earth. You said all the kingdoms of the earth were yours. If I bowed, you'd give them to me because they were yours to give. All right, now I've won. Give them back. And in the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus got it back. And he walks in procession, giving gifts to his people as part of the victory and among those gifts are gifts of leadership. It's interesting, too, in this passage, the one piece that it leaves out that is in Psalm 68 was that additional, even to the rebellious. So there are people who rebelled against him initially, but who later on submitted. And that's us for sure, isn't it? All of us, before we knew Christ, our hearts were turned away from God, and then we found him and submitted to his leadership. And we get included in that wonderful gift. Oh my, I can go on and on. The gifts are ministries. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These are ministries of authority. But the purpose is to equip the saints for the work of ministry or service. And that's the exciting thing. You think about it for a moment. If I have the gift of teaching, then my task really is to help you love the Word of God and to know the Word of God until you can get, ex till you get excited about the power of the Word of God and the meaning and the understanding of the Word of God and you can start teaching others. That's my role, to make you able to teach others. If my gift is evangelism, if I'm an evangelist, then my goal is to get you so excited about sharing your faith and equip you to share your faith so you go out and share your faith with others, help others to share their faith. If my gift is a pastor, 
then my gift is, my purpose is to get you so excited about building up a community of faith that you get people in your home, you start encouraging them in faith, you start helping them in discipleship, you start encouraging them to be a part of the body, and you help others to do the same, and so on. The gifts, these fivefold ministries, they're often called, are the, the contractors for the body of Christ. They are the primary equippers, but the workers are you and me. The ev- everyday members of the church. We have ministries, and those, min- those ministries exist to build up the body of Christ. And that's unity through servanthood to build up the body of Christ until we reach the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the full measure of the perfection found in Christ. Now here again, this is that that word faith. So I said, remember, we're endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit until we come into the unity of the faith. But I said there was one faith, and that was a different word from this one. This is the word pistuo, and it means belief or doctrine fleshed out in experience. So we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit until we come into this unity of understanding and faith. And it happens as the ministries are exercised and people are brought up into the fullness of Christ. Doctrine is for the mature, not for the babies. Unity of the Spirit is for all of us until we get to that place. Toward the maturity that what we believe equals what we say equals what we do. That's the trouble, I think. So often our faith, our doctrine, becomes not something we live out but something we hit people over the heads with. And that's not maturity. Doctrine ought to be that which helps us to know God better. Helps us to understand how to live for him. There ought to be a unity between what we say and what we believe and what we do. And in that Paul says there's unity as we submit and grow in maturity because there's freedom from deception then we're no longer infants tossed back and forth by the waves blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Wow, that's great. How does that happen? Because the body of Christ is doing its work and we're coming into maturity. And we understand that what we live and what we teach have a harmony together. No longer infants, not dependent about what others say about the scripture, but we've got into it ourselves to hear what God is saying. No longer tossed, but committed and stable, anchored and held in our love for one another. Loyal and trustworthy, not led astray and deceived. And lastly, there's unity through discipleship. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work.
There's a character of this discipleship which he says is speaking the truth in love. And I have to honestly say this is what we do normally. Yeah, Out of love, I don't really tell you the truth because I don't want to hurt you. So I just bear with it and absorb it. And after a while it starts niggling. And then it gets worse and worse. And finally, I really tell you the truth. <laughs> but it's no longer in love. Learning how to speak the truth to one another in love is one of the most profound, mature actions a believer can demonstrate. If you can say the truth, if you can speak correction to another in a way where the power is balanced, where you're not lording it over them, you're not looking down on them, where you can look at them and challenge them to to face the truth, to do it in love in such a way that your goal is for them to grow in Christ, that is a mark of maturity. May we take each one of us to challenge. And then he says, there are joints. Now, you know what joints do in the body, don't they? They allow one part to move around another part. I think that speaks of relationships in the body of Christ. We're not inflexible. We connect to one another. We work together. Each joint does something. And sometimes when, when if, the, if the forearm were joined to the, to the other part of the arm, we couldn't bend and we couldn't lift. But when they work together, we can do things that, not one, that one part alone could never do. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He says, the church grows together as we work together. In our relationships, we work in harmony and unity. We can accomplish so much more. The ligaments, commitments of love, not an experience to sustain a commitment, as so often is the practice now, but a commitment to sustain an experience. We're not saying, I'm here in the church, keep me happy and I'll stay loyal. Keep me showing love. Show love to me and I'll stay, but if you stop doing that, I'm going to leave. No. I'm here because Jesus Christ is my Lord and I'm committed to love. And out of that, we work through together. And that's when we grow up in love as each part does its work. Wow. What a passage. What a rich passage. Unity through discipleship and finding conclusion, I'd say several things. If this was... Christ's prayer. Shouldn't it be higher on our priority list? Shouldn't we be praying and working toward a unity of the Spirit among us as a high priority of our daily walk with Him? Secondly, remember the order. Let's endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit until we come into the unity of the flesh, or of the faith, rather than trying to put the unity of the faith first in order that we can come into the unity of the Spirit. It doesn't work that way. And lastly, remember this, disunity can be incredibly wounding. If you've been through experiences of church where there's been disharmony and hurt and heartbreak, you know the pain it causes when churches split and people leave. It does great damage. But unity, where the life of God 
flows is a healing experience. When people come to a church where there is a lordship of Christ and a love of his heart flowing among us, it's a healing experience in and of itself. And may that be the mark of our fellowship together. Father, thank you that you're here speaking your word and your truth. We bless you for it in Jesus' name.